Let's get into it. Uh, so, everybody listening, hello, hello, greetings. Uh, it's another podcast, Citizen Reporter. Of course, I am uh, Mark, Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. And uh, as many of you have uh, reached out and, and told me over the last few months, you've been listening to these podcasts that we've been doing with a lot of old friends. Uh, and there's been a mix of questions about how are you doing and uh, what are you doing, especially in this time where uh, what you're doing may not be what you were usually doing. I'm talking about the corona uh, pandemic. We're still in it. Uh, for those of you listening in the future, this is uh, now December 1st of 2020. And who better to speak with uh, of all my friends, uh, a, a world citizen himself, uh, coming to us from the UK currently, uh, journalist, documentary maker, uh, a renaissance man, I say. Uh, it's Shafir Rahman. Hi, Shafir. Hi, hi, Mark. Thanks very much for having me on your podcast. <laughs> it's been uh, well. It's funny when you when you log into Skype, it, it shows that we haven't chatted in a year, at least via that medium. Uh, but of course, we have our emails, and you and I send each other notes. But yeah, there have been many times where I think like, oh, I'd like to talk to Shafir, and in some cases, I would like to share it with people because I think yeah, there's so much interesting and important uh, information experiences to be shared and yet you know we live in this world as you well know as a as a journalist yourself where it's there's a lot of competition for being heard um shafir how have the, the, the from the at least the wide view how have the last where are we now 10 months been the corona pandemic for you as a as a documentary maker as a concerned citizen yeah, no, I think that's the question of the year, really. What are, you know, this is what we'll be asking ourselves. What did we do during these months? Uh, hopefully, we can ask these questions to ourselves if we survive. Um, things are pretty bad in England right now. Mm. Uh, look, uh, since December of 2016, I've been visiting the refugee camps. I think uh, I've been there 23 or 24 times. So that's uh, quite a rate of visits to the camps. And I've not been able to do that since uh, February of this year uh, when I came back from the camps. Um, and But it was very difficult for me to just let the work be in limbo, as it were, or just suspend the work and do other things. I have done other uh, work in, uh, in the UK uh, regarding covid we followed up a story regarding body bags. Uh, I broke a story about body bags in uh, in England because of COVID, uh, body bag shortage, I should say. Hmm. Um, and I also did some uh, work with CNN regarding uh, the, uh, the COVID situation as it affects ethnic minorities. Um, so, but really my heart is still in the Rohingya camps. I can't get there. So I devised some ways of filling my time. And 
One of these is uh, has been, uh, you know, running a podcast. Hmm. Another is uh, what I decided to do is run a photography competition for hmm. Rohingya refugees. Let, let's start with, uh, I want to make sure I get the geography, well, uh, really the information. When you say, you know, I, I owe, uh, until Corona, you would be regularly at the camps. Let's put people geographically, where are, because I think there's more than one, but you tell me, uh, Rohingya refugee camps are in Myanmar? Okay, so the Rohingya refugees have left Myanmar and gone into Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. There are many internally displaced camps within Myanmar. They're called IDP camps. But the ones that I've been visiting are at the border between Bangladesh and Myanmar. And these are uh, effectively, in uh, these are the refugee camps in, in Bangladesh uh, that I've been visiting, uh, you know, these 23, 24 times. And and uh, the the camps uh, in Bangladesh. I mean, how many people are we talking about? We're we're talking about thirty four camps spread in a very small geographical area, and we're talking about one point one million people. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of refugees. It's the biggest refugee camp um, uh, in, in the world. Uh, basically, me- for many years, this is not a new phenomenon, for many years Rohingya have been fleeing Myanmar by any means possible. Uh, some of the most desperate aboarded ships in the hope of reaching a place of safety, others cross the border, um, and uh, many have drowned in the small stretch of water that separates uh, Myanmar from Bangladesh. It's a really horrendous and, and tragic story. Yeah. And and it's a story that I think, you know, even people who are or fancy themselves uh, followers of what is going on in international media, it probably got some headlines. What now, like two years ago when when uh, refugees really started fleeing? I'm wondering if I have my timeline wrong, but how long have these, for example, the camps in Bangladesh been in existence? You know, you're absolutely right again that uh, this kind of sometimes flashes into our kind of news world and then it completely disappears. Yet such a tragedy is unfolding all the time. This These camps have existed since 1978. We're talking about four decades. Mm-hmm. And periodically there's large-scale violence happening in Myanmar. And then you get these repeated uh, influxes into Bangladesh uh, you get an exodus of people who come into Bangladesh uh, fleeing for their lives. Um, not just Bangladesh, by the way, I should add that um, people also try to flee to places like Thailand and Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and again, uh, it's a very tragic story. Human traffickers are involved in uh, taking these desperate people in boats and taking them to Thailand or Malaysia and traffickers kill an untold, they've killed an untold number of refugees at sea. And then you have these onshore human trafficking camps in Thailand and Malaysia. So you get these flashpoints of news, you know, they, they discover mass graves in Thailand and Malaysia, and then it hits the news. There's a new uh, campaign by the Myanmar military, it hits the news. Mm-hmm. But this... Genocide is what one can call it. 
um, is is carrying on, and, uh, and and as you say, we we don't know about it. Yeah, and here I said what uh, two years, nineteen <laughs> seventies. That's yeah, that's quite yeah, yeah. a long stretch. I mean, what uh, recourse do people have? You you get to a refugee camp. I mean, I've seen the photos, and we'll talk more about photographs. Uh, but these are small cities, towns. Uh, but you know, once you live in, if you get to such a place, you've just talked about how harrowing, harrowing it is to even get there. But then what? I mean, what are you learning about people's lives in the camp? Yeah, small cities, small towns. I mean, absolutely. Look, I in the city I live in, Cambridge, it's hmm. uh, 100,000 people. We're talking about 11 times that number of people who uh, basically exited Myanmar at such a rate. I mean, this is like within a few weeks, all these people, uh, eight, eight 740,000 people found themselves in Bangladesh. And then, of course, there were the existing refugees already there. Once you get there, um, these are all, all makeshift camps. You know, these are not... Uh, you know, you, you don't have prefabricated. You might know of other refugee scenarios where you see these prefab homes. No, no, yep. this is nothing like that. There's serious malnutrition. Um, people don't have uh, freedom of movement. They can't work. Uh, children don't have access to formal education. And the camps are congested and they're very problematic on a number of counts. Sanitation problems, other environmental hazards. Etc. Etc. It's a difficult life. I mean, to be a refugee is is a is a is a bit of a harsh sentence, to say the least. Within the camps themselves, who is responsible? I mean, we know we have the UNHCR, uh, the High Commission for Refugees, that in many cases in this world is doing something related to to managing refugee camps. But as you said, for example, the camps that are in Bangladesh, is there any participation from the government of that country? Who's who's running things? Yes, I mean, there are so many organizations there. The main org UN organizations are there, UNHCR, the World Food Program, and the International Organization of uh, Migration. These, these guys are there. Um, of course, Spanish government, uh, has the lead role in organizing the camps. Its army is heavily involved in the camps, whether it's to make new roads or to install barbed wire. Mm. It's the Bangladesh army. Um, one can say it's an efficient operation. I mean, from what happened when the refugees started pouring in, that was absolutely desperate. It was horrendous to see. You can ask seasoned journalists, they'll tell you they were all shocked at mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 uh, the conditions that, uh, that pertained at that time. But since then, over these three years, since 2017, August 25th is when the influx, uh, August 25th of 2017 is when the influx started, this most recent influx. Um, since then, there have been tremendous adv uh, advances in terms of organizing the camps. I'm not saying that that's all hunky-dory, not at all. This organization is uh, how to make this thing work to to whatever limited level they want it to work. But mm -hmm. it's uh, it's not a, uh, this is not, I mean, uh, uh, people, this is not no kind of existence that one wants. Uh, as I said to you, um, people are seriously constrained and uh, they just sit around waiting for aid. Shafir, over the years when we talk, uh, you've described, you, you know, you've really brought 
places that I've only read about uh, or seen occasional photos from, you, you brought them more to life uh, uh, when you were in what was called the jungle. Uh, uh, but even way back when we first met, you were on the topic of uh, Bihari people uh, in Bangladesh who had been living also in, in camps since the 70s. How, how does this, both the situation of the people there and the conditions people are living in, I mean, how do you see it? I, I don't want to say how does it compare uh, but, uh, you know, you've got a lot of experience and, and what worries you most about what you see? No, I, I, I think, I think that's a very valid question, uh, Mark, because, uh, for me, I had no intention to spend all this time in the camps until I went there. I was not doing anything on one, one particular day in 2016 I decided to go and have a look at the camps huh? and what I saw and what I heard completely overwhelmed me. And this is why, uh, this is why I'm so kind of enmeshed in the Rohingya struggle. Um, I've, I've seen uh, refugee camps in Libya uh, just after the fall of Gaddafi. I've seen detention centers in Malta. I've seen detention centers in Italy. Uh, I have never, ever seen anything like what I experienced in Bangladesh in, 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 uh, in the camps. So it, it, it certainly ranks uh, up there as amongst the most uh, horrendous things you can imagine. Um, I can even say that initially I would say I was, I was emotionally overwhelmed. I, I, I even consulted a clinical psychologist because I, because I was following these refugees. I wanted to make sure I didn't traumatize myself and yeah. I didn't traumatize them with the questions that I was asking. Mm -hmm. So, no, it's, um, it's, it certainly ranks up there, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I know, uh, and I want to definitely talk about the evolution uh, of let's call it the work uh, as a documentary maker for example I imagine you bringing your camera with you um, you you are uh, to my understanding you're someone who likes to learn about people's lives uh, yes the challenges they face but also what they're doing um, but uh, it's interesting how there's Shafir who brings the camera, but you you branched out, including, I mean, at this time uh, during COVID, but uh, with more than just recording images and interviews of people's lives. How, how does that, how has that evolved uh, to the photo uh, contest, for example, and then eventually into audio? Yeah, I think that's an essential question, um, which is that uh, do, does one limit oneself to journalism? Does one just simply bear witness um, and not get involved in any way whatsoever? I've struggled with that myself. And uh, in the end, I said, no, to hell with it. I can't just bear witness. It is uh, not possible. Um, and perhaps, you know, people with, uh, 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 who are longstanding journalists will disagree with me because they will say that this is not your role. And, uh, sure. I mean, we can discuss that if, <laughs> if necessary, but I found myself firstly, having followed the six women in the camps and then, um, that was a story to follow what happens to these people. And one of them was trafficked within a month. I then went to India to follow Rohingya refugees, what happens to trafficked Rohingya women in uh, in India. And through this, I realized that uh, keeping oneself to just simply bearing witness was difficult. I wanted to do something for these girls at the end of my work with them. And uh, 
So one of them suggested that we buy them a sewing machine and mm -hmm. through that a small cooperative started um, and uh, been managing that cooperative. And the model is quite simple. People buy stuff on the internet and uh, what happens is that um, uh, that money then goes to the person who makes the item of clothing. That item of clothing is given away free to another refugee. So it's a kind of win-win, everyone wins sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been going for three to four years, uh, three years, and uh, hopefully, no, less than three years, I, I, should, I shouldn't uh, uh, exaggerate, it's been going for about two, two and a half years. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been going from strength to strength. We started with six, it's now, uh, I think there were 70, people in this uh, wow. in this cooperative um, regarding the uh, photography competition uh, look man I think uh, you know we all know that uh, I think refugees need to have a voice of their own I think for one of the things that this pandemic did was to prevent journalists from going into the camps because Bangladesh was very strict about who went into the camps and so on. Yeah. So very few, otherwise journalists are crawling, journalists, photographers, documentary makers are crawling all over the place. And mm. this is not possible. So yeah. in this context, I decided that this is a perfect opportunity to give Rohingya uh, youths, and they're really you know, many of them have smartphones. They're very keen to use their phones. Uh, <laughs> it snaps. They're always sharing pictures with me, sharing, you know, what, what they've seen, basically capturing their experience, uh, if you like, evidence, capturing evidence all around them. Um, so I thought this is, this is the perfect time to, to give them that opportunity. And and then uh, in terms of making it a contest, uh, is, I guess this is along the same lines of getting people excited, uh, working towards something. I I believe so. You know, I I think if if you don't formalize it a little bit, um, then you won't perhaps uh, get that precipitation where everyone is kind of contributing sure. uh, uh, photographs and, and, and documenting their lives. Um, look, uh, again, I think it's important to point out when, you know, refugees, there, there's a prevailing cultural image of the refugee, isn't there, which is usually of a, of a grief-stricken woman uh, clutching her head or some child who's crying or is alone um and uh of course look i i don't you know i understand that you've got to underscore um the the desperate situation you've got to underscore the urgency and the, and address the needs of the refugees that that's that's all fine but what that kind of imagery does is just make these people um just just like as a bunch of traumatized people who have no agency, who have no resilience, who can't do anything. But in fact, you know, they, they survive, they're survivors. Uh, yeah. So it's wrong to treat them as all kind of unable to do anything that may, they must be managed, they must be given aid, they must be, uh, because following on from that kind of management is that they don't need to be consulted, they, don't, they mm. can be told what to do, and policies and plans don't even need their consent. 
So, but when you give photographers uh, uh, and journalists and budding documentary makers this opportunity to tell their own story, they're not going to tell it like that. You know, the photographs that we've received in this competition, there's a tremendous variety. There's the absurd, you know, like little kid who's uh, got his own PPE. He's got it. uh, He's taken a banana leaf and wrapped it around his his, his mouth. Um, And then to the, you know, quite touching. And of course, there are serious subjects as well. But so that's necessary for Rohingya people to say this is this is our life. Have a look, and this is an authentic voice that emerges. Yeah, no, and and I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, the, the aspect of having a competition, uh, a friend of mine just sort of expressed uh, some joy because they had uh, submitted a piece of uh, writing, a longtime writer, in sort of as a hobby, as, and then the idea that you're in a competition. There are judges, and I see, of course, that. As opposed to just opening an Instagram account and saying, hey, or anybody, or use this hashtag. No, it's, uh, this is a photography competition. Uh, the people who participate, uh, who are from the camp, they're gonna ha- there's going to be judges that are going to give them sort of feedback, and, and there, there will be a recognition uh, for people's work. I, I, I certainly see how that has impact anywhere in this world. Remember that these photographs we have been getting, they're not just people snapping uh, irrelevant stuff Hmm. Uh, this is these are Rohingya refugees who are going through an incredible kind of period in their lives um, during this pandemic and uh, you know uh, initially without the internet um, with all the kind of constraints that exists and all the kind of uh, problems that exist in the camps so and we were expecting extraordinary images and we got extraordinary images Uh, and people went to great lengths to provide those images. There's one guy who sent three photographs Hmm. um, from those who were rescued from a traffic boat. Uh, These are emaciated Rohingya refugees sitting and waiting uh, for medical health checkups in some facility. And he risked his job sending us those images. But it's necessary to capture what happens to refugees when they're trafficked. For two months they were on this boat, unable to wash. Many people committed suicide. Many people died. It's a horrendous story. And photographs can capture that. Um, so I think we got extraordinary photographs. And uh, and I think that extraordinariness has to be supported in, in, the, in the small ways that we can. And we're going to do that through um, a couple of exhibitions, one at the University of Ottawa and one at the University of uh, uh, Oxford Brookes University. And then uh, the University of Ottawa's director of the Human Rights uh, Research and Education Centre there is going to put together a publication based on the uh, photographs submitted. Uh, so, yeah, no, absolutely. We intend to push this as and support this as much as we can. Shafir, let's go a little bit into uh, sound. Um, you know, you mentioned there's the podcast. I, I certainly have clicked uh, around and played uh, most of them. Of course, uh, language is sometimes a barrier, but uh, I've heard voices. Uh, I've heard different topics uh, about uh, and uh, what I thought was by, but now I get to ask you, by uh, Rohingya refugees. Um, at the beginning, I remember we exchanged some messages. Uh, how did it start for you? 
and then we'll get into how it's changed. But, you know, at first, the idea of having a podcast. Well, that's all down to you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I mean, absolutely, because uh, um, I had to come to you for advice, what to use, what not to use, and so on. And thank you for the guidance that you gave me. But I think what was what was in my mind at that time is that, again, it's about um, giving some sort of opportunity for Rohingya voices to kind of come through. Uh, the Rohingya voices that you hear are all in the diaspora. They're Europe-based or they're uh, USA-based. Mm. Um, they are... Uh, it's not from the camps. And uh, so my idea was that we should try and give some sort of uh, uh, platform to these guys so that uh, we can hear what they want to say about various issues. Um, initially, we started off with, of course, diaspora leaders and leadership mm -hmm. speaking. And I think that's also important because um, there was a I can give you one particular example. There was a um, fighting between Muslim Rohingya and Christian Rohingya. Mm -hmm. And the podcast actually provided a platform for the two sides to have some dialogue. Yeah. So some questions were asked by the Christian Rohingya of the leadership of the Muslim Rohingya, if you like, though that's, you know, I, I don't quite like that dichotomy. Um, mm. No one is proclaiming themselves to be uh, a leader of the Muslim Rohingya, but it's just how uh, this has transpired. So okay. what they wanted to ask these questions and we were able to do it through this, uh, through this podcast. Yeah. Um, so, of course, the pandemic has interfered greatly and you know, the lack of internet. Uh, remember, the Rohingya camps were cut off from the internet since last September until sometime middle of this year. Mm. Um, so that's that's taken a bit of a but bit of a hit. But now internet is back online. We don't know for how long, but we certainly intend to take advantage of uh, of of the uh, of the Wi-Fi while it, while it still exists. Sure. Yeah. And and thinking about people who who are in the camp who could or may send information in, in any form, um, and as you said, having been cut off, how do people in the average camp, uh, I know there's going to be a lot of variation, but how do they get internet? Of course, I know of situations uh, elsewhere in the world where uh, if there's any official uh, offices, you know, even UNHCR, and then the password kind of gets uh, underground shared, and then people will all get on the same Wi-Fi. But, uh, or is it a mobile uh, data? How do, how do people get their internet on average uh, in a camp, say, in, in, in Bangladesh? In the Bangladesh camps, it's overwhelmingly um, mobile data. Okay. Um, they're okay. using 3G and 4G. That's what was disconnected in September of last year. 3G and 4G services were completely discontinued. Now, it also has to be said that the Bangladesh government decided that Rohingya should not have uh, access to mobile phones. They should not have SIM cards. Wow. That hasn't been implemented, so people still have SIM cards. Mm -hmm. And I think the pressure that uh, various organizations, international human rights, human humanitarian organizations, put on Bangladesh has made them change their minds, especially during this pandemic regarding um, the accessibility of uh, uh, the, the accessibility to 3G and uh, 4G for the Rohingya refugees. So they've switched things back on. Hmm. 
Uh, yeah, and, and and I did listen, um, going back to the podcast, uh, as a lot of the topics were, for example, elections uh, in Myanmar. You, you mentioned when there are uh, situations of violence that may break out. It was, it was very much like a, a news roundup of information that is connected or has an effect or is about uh, people in, in the camps. Uh, but as you said, uh, by people who are not there. Uh, so that certainly limits or or shapes uh how much and what they can talk about um the as it stands now here we are in december um what role are you playing with the audio i'm curious if you're if you're the one who puts it all together at the end or has that even you've managed to get let people do that themselves yeah that would be the ideal mark which is that uh at the moment they're simply using a smartphone with a with a microphone mm -hmm. uh, so that there's some social distancing available rather than holding the mic to someone's uh, mouth. And they're just using the inbuilt uh, audio recording software, sure. uh, which comes with the smartphone. Mm -hmm. Then that is uh, WhatsApped or emailed to me. Um, WhatsApp by using document method or emailed to me. Um, and uh, then I put it together. Uh, as as you probably can tell, very amateurishly, and, no, didn't, uh, didn't feel uh, that way. But yeah, <laughs> I thought it was quite good. No, the idea the idea, Mark, is to really kind of up the game a bit. So you know, introduce music and introduce ambient mm. noise. Yeah. Um, to to and now that three G and four G are back, that's what we want to do. Ooh. And uh, recently, uh, Sky News wanted to do a little documentary on an orphan uh, from Myanmar whose parents were killed, whose siblings were killed. And uh, these guys have been training, uh, have been able to help out. So they made all the recordings, which the Sky News team are very happy with. Yeah. And uh, they'll be putting it together. But yes, next step is definitely for them to do the editing. That's That's where they... Yeah, that's where the idea, yeah, the goal is. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, it's it's one of these things that I always I'm curious about it, but I also know like you know sound in a world where phones are everywhere, uh, images have so much value, and especially uh, people who have phones that you know they can they have that power in their hands. I can take a photo, I can capture this video, this both for, for social stuff, for fun, but also for these, ooh, this is a big moment. Something's happening here. I must capture it. But what has not happened on a mass scale the same way is that the same tool, uh, but used for audio, which is possible, of course, and can be good, um, just never really takes off. You know, no one, no one seems to think like, I have an audio recorder in my hand. I can capture this sound. Uh, but yet, it is a possibility. Uh, I've noticed also working with people uh, who have, you know, limited resources and are going through different kinds of struggles in this world. If you get somebody headphones, uh, you know, and we both know there are some very cheap headphones in this world that still work. And you see how uh, many people don't have that tradition of putting in headphones and talking into a phone and hearing how it sounds and sort of. So I, I get to spend a lot of time uh walking people through this experience or rather watching them as they go through it. Um, and, and that, yeah, that has me curious also for what we might hear uh, from, from a camp, from someone who lives, is living their life, uh, either just, you know, uh, daily tasks or, or maybe the larger questions of, you know, the future and, and uh, the socio-political uh, big things to, 
to fight for there. Um, I just wonder, yeah, what will happen yeah. audio-wise? What could happen? I, I think with the Rohingya, it's it's a bit different, Mark, and uh, positively different in that um, WhatsApp is widely used. And one of the ways, because there's no written language, is that, um, and sometimes you'd have to explain video. I mean, video is ideal, but of course it's, it's, it's heavier as well. Yeah. So what you find is that messages from whether it's uh, Rohingya political organizations or people commenting on the uh, developments of the day are quite lengthy audio messages. Mm. They are, uh, you know, Rohingya belong to all sorts of their, you know, networks, WhatsApp networks, and they share these messages around. So whether it's a religious kind of uh, thing, whether it's a song, whether it's a political commentary, it's all done through audio and it's all done on WhatsApp. Um, so there is a natural, if you like, uh, uh, advantage there of people mm. listening to audio. Hmm. And um, even, for example, they have some, uh, their diaspora uh, members uh, have some television, uh, television channels in, in Malaysia and so on. Hmm. And these guys often put their news out with just a kind of, well, they'll, uh, they'll put it out audio on WhatsApp, but they'll also have a very simple video playing, maybe just the repeat two images or hmm. And and the video and they will upload to YouTube. Those who have YouTube access, so audio definitely is not playing junior fiddle hmm. in the context of the Rohingya. So uh, as we look ahead, as you look ahead, uh, as much as you can in a time where you're not sure about everything, you know, we're we're now in the season where there's a lot of talk about vaccines. Uh, you're in the neighborhood of one of those research institutes that has a vaccine uh, uh, sometime soon. They say. Uh, but at the same time, of course, we know in this wide world, uh, just because there is a vaccine doesn't, well, doesn't guarantee or it doesn't tell us when or if. Um, but when you look ahead and, and we started today by saying, you know, you, you used to go to the camps all the time. That was just a part of how you do your work and, and part of your life. It means a lot to you. Um, if you think to the beginning of 2021, uh, what do you want to do? How are you? Uh, yeah, what are you saying to yourself as yeah. the year a new a new year begins? The local neighborhood vaccine, as you know, has come under <laughs> a bit of criticism. Uh, oh yeah, so I'm not sure what's happening with that, hmm. uh, but hopefully the others will come through. <laughs> but I think uh, vaccine or no vaccine, uh, we can't be cowed by this thing. We need to. We need to look forward. We need to plan. You know, what I've been doing with my fixers is uh, planning outrageous things, things that are <laughs> impossible to do. But, you know, it keeps you going. It really, you know, it's very necessary to to, to plan ahead and to kind of uh, think of a, a different world and to create a vision uh, so that you can uh, follow it up when uh, they, the time arrives. I think uh, 2021 hopefully will be different, whether it's uh, spring or summer. Um, thankfully, coronavirus has not hit the camps uh, as badly, as uh, nowhere near as badly as had been anticipated. Uh, there's only about uh, less than 400 uh, cases, 
and only 10 deaths. Mm. And real predictions were absolutely dire. Uh, but thankfully, that hasn't happened. So as soon as we get our house in order in England, mm. I'll be on my way. Um, oh, yes. So, yeah. <laughs> Ah, yes. Is that a Brexit reference? <laughs> <laughs> no, that unfortunately is uh, is not going to be put to order, but there you are. All right. Yeah, it's interesting, too, about the photos. And of course, if you had, I think, told anyone, certainly me, uh, here I have a photo competition. It's from refugee camps, uh, Rohingya refugee camps. Uh, I'm in. I want to see. I want to know. Um, but an interesting element of all these photos um, I mean, they were posted around in the summertime, but I assume they were taken. Uh, they're taken during Corona time. So some images will have certainly masks, people keeping, I mean, in the context yeah. of a camp, uh, distance from one another. So it's just this, yeah, second layer on top of an already very difficult existence. Then also, oh yeah, the threat of Corona. Absolutely. These are the stresses and fears uh, that they're having to live through. And one of the competition themes is the response to COVID-19. So that's a theme in the uh, in the competition. And the photographs were taken between April and August of this year. So yes, definitely during the peak of the uh, COVID crisis, uh, or at least the first wave. And um, yeah, so they're going to be, uh, the prize winners will be announced very shortly. I don't know when this program is going out, but it's going this to week. be announced <laughs> on the 5th of December. Mm -hmm. And uh, we will, yeah, people can visit our Instagram and the website uh, to uh, I'll give you the links for people to click. Yeah, on Instagram, the uh, the, the uh, account is Rohingya, and I'll, I'll provide a link, photography. Uh, but also, I know you're, you've posted uh, a lot of audio on uh, SoundCloud, but that's the kutupalang, uh, dot, well, dot com is the website, but there's also on SoundCloud for those people who follow specific accounts just to hear the audio, you can. Uh, and I, as I said, I, it's, it's very easy to play, listen, listen to, I, I like to listen to voices even when I don't understand the language. You can make out uh, themes, uh, topics, and indeed some of it is in English as well. Um, and and if you really scroll down, you'll find Shafir introducing an episode. Uh, so there's, there's that that people can access. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I know you also had posted things on Medium, or perhaps it's that you're publishing using Medium. What's going on here? Well, um, I I took all the advice you gave me, Mark. Oh, <laughs> it's my fault. No, no, no. I, and I wanted it to be as sustainable as possible without yep. naming any names. So I made it uh, uh, future-proof as much as I could. So the podcasts are available on uh, Apple, Spotify, Google yep. Podcasts, etc. Um, and there's an English language summary of most of the podcasts. Yep. Uh, on Medium. So that was the idea to provide yeah. uh, some context to uh, non-Rohingya speakers so they, they would have a English reference there, yeah. uh, English language text there. Yeah. yeah. No, future proofing. I'm, I'm glad that if I could contribute at all to that idea because you did. I, you did. Uh, okay, I myself struggle with it for projects I did even just three or four years ago where websites are no longer maintained, they weren't in my hands and I have to salvage the audio. And yeah, this, this future proofing is, is quite something uh, that we rarely talk about, but often face on the internet and as people who post and create 
Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for uh, giving me the heads up on this. It's uh, down to you, man. <laughs> All right, Shafir. Well, I'll provide the text links for everybody. And uh, yeah, we'll probably post this program just around the time you announce the, uh, the winner. So I'll put a direct link to that announcement. And uh, I'm glad to hear you, you sound good to me. Um, I, I know and we can hear that it's a, certainly an adjustment as for everybody uh, in, your, in your life the last months. But you sound like you're taking it well and still being, uh, you know, constructive and creative. Thank you. I'm trying to be. And uh, yeah, sure. And thank you for having me on the program. Oh, my pleasure, my friend. I will talk to you again very soon. But for now, thanks so much. Cheers. Shafir Rahman is a documentary filmmaker, journalist, and a global citizen of the highest caliber. Follow his work with Rohingya refugees on Instagram, R-O-H-I-N-G-Y-A Photography. His writing on the Rohingya crises can be found at shafir.medium.com and find him on Twitter at Shafir. Thank you for listening to Citizen Reporter. Coming up this week we will be back with special guest, documentary maker and longtime friend of the show Michael Schapp. Don't miss it. Subscribe to Citizen Reporter in your podcast app today. Until next time. And on behalf of Mark Fonseca Rendero, I am Siri. See ya.